Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, October 25th. According to Food Banks Canada, over 18% of people in Canada are struggling to put food on the table, forcing more and more to turn to local food banks for support. We hear details on the findings of the 2023 Hunger Count Report from Richard Matern, Director of Research from Food Banks Canada. Earlier this week, the death toll in Gaza officially crossed the 5,000 mark. We get the latest developments on the Israel terrorist group Hamas War from Elliot Tepper, senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. The Bank of Canada's latest announcement regarding interest rates came out on Wednesday morning with the rate being held at 5%. We get reaction to the announcement from Nikola Gradojevic, professor of finance at the University of Guelph. Food bank visits are up a whopping 32% compared to March of 2022 and 78% since 2019. Joining us to talk about the new 2023 Hunger Count Report is Richard Matern, who is Food Banks Canada Director of Research. Good morning to you, Richard. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Can you just uh, define what this hunger count report actually is, and then we can get into some of those, well, I guess what are re- you could call them just sad numbers. Yeah, indeed. So the hunger count report is Food Banks Canada's annual census-type snapshot about the state of food bank use across the country. And um, it enables us to monitor trends and, and what's going on uh, in the general population around food bank use. What do you see as the main factors right now behind this massive increase to the visits, Richard? Oh, so right now it's the cost of living, not surprisingly. So we're having greater numbers of the population, uh, greater numbers of people who are struggling to make ends meet. And that spills over into food banks. So you're seeing more and more people with not only low incomes, but those who are maybe on the edge with average incomes. Um, who are just falling short uh, and, and they just can't make ends meet this year. And uh, with the purchasing power of their income dropping by the month as inflation continued, uh, that's what you're seeing. Richard, what are the levels when you talk about that low income and, and you know, in, in terms of what people are making money-wise mm-hmm. and, and then having to go to the food bank? Or do you just take anybody who says, hey, I need to come in, I need a little helping hand? Well, generally speaking, people will not come to the food bank unless they feel they absolutely need to. Mm-hmm. So this, yeah. the numbers this year show that, you know, things are pretty bad. Um, normally, you're seeing a lot of people on social assistance, provincial social assistance. So they're, they're well under the poverty line, the official poverty line, which is under like 25K a year for a single person. Um, but more and more, you're seeing people who are working. So maybe their incomes might be over that. Uh, official low-income amount, but it's still not enough when you consider, uh, you know, if their wages have only increased 3-4% um, and the cost of living has increased 6% with food even well beyond that, 9% and gasoline and so forth. Uh, it's it, just the, the what's, you know, maybe if they're earning 40-50K, it feels a lot less, especially when you consider the, the cost of housing they're paying as well. Do you see, Richard, uh, you know, region by region, a similar demand or do some regions in the country stick out more than others right now? Oh, generally, you know, you're seeing, well, over the last year, you you had Quebec, Ontario, um, and Manitoba seeing the biggest jump in the last year. But when you look over to compared to before the pandemic, uh, in addition to Quebec and Alberta, uh, Ontario, Alberta was in the top three. So Alberta has seen almost, you know, a 100% increase since before the pandemic in 2019. Hmm. Any other numbers for Alberta you can uh, break down for us and, and anything yeah. that, and that maybe surprised you? 
Well, it, not not too surprising. With Alberta, you're you're seeing more working poor. So the working poor theme in general for across the country, we saw uh, increase from like 11, 12 percent for years. That was the proportion of working poor accessing food banks across the country, and now that jumped to 14 percent last year. Now 17 percent this year. In Alberta, it's 22 percent. So you're looking at about a quarter of food bank clients who are getting their main source of income from employment. So that's one of the standouts from Alberta. And Alberta's usually had more working people accessing food banks, unfortunately, because of the cost of living in certain areas. But but that's particularly standing out this year. Um, and uh, more people, you know, are citing, citing unemployment. I think Alberta had to deal with a, a, an economic downturn before 2019. So on top of that, then it was the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis that you're dealing with. So uh, yeah, there's a few things going on in Alberta. And we think you've listed off, Richard, so many different factors. It's a very complex issue. And you think, well, who could help? Well, maybe, and something we've talked about on this program many times, government. But do you believe that government could you know, do something to change things sooner rather than later? What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. So there, there's numerous things that could happen right away. Uh, in regards to the working poor, there's uh, you know expanding uh, those who are eligible for employment insurance. There's um, there's uh, expanding supports for working people. Right now, a lot of people who are employed aren't really entitled to the same benefits that other people might get. They might not have health coverage or dental coverage. So we're looking for some universal benefits. That's something that can be implemented. Um, and then during the pandemic, we had uh, you know these, these one-time top-ups to the GST and other tax benefits. If we continue to add those to help people uh, throughout the cost of living crisis we're experiencing now, that can make a big difference. And looking at affordable housing, of course, um, and, and working towards a basic income floor for people who can't work, like those with disabilities, and, and getting that hopefully getting that federal disability benefit uh, going through as soon as possible. Richard, we're waiting for expecting another potential interest rate hike today. How does something like that is it is it the you know the ones that keep coming, or does one interest rate hike really influence how many people will show up at a food bank? Um, n- not, I think, perhaps in, in, the, in the larger picture, it, it could. Uh, but more and more what you're seeing with people with food banks, that a lot of it has to do uh, around with like these chronically low incomes or some of the, the day-to-day expenses around uh, food or, um, you know, health care needs or, or, or rent. So that's, those are the key issues that are being faced uh, right now. So sort of like... intermediate changes in interest rates and so forth, you might not see the effects on food banks right away. It could have a spillover effect, but right now we need to deal with some of these these longer-term income support issues. An incredible stat, and I think this... You know, kind of puts things in perspective, Richard, uh, you know, as far as, you know, it is enough to, to understand anybody's suffering. But one third, according to the report, one third of clients to food banks across the nation are children, which totals about 600,000 mouths to feed. Is, is that something that sticks out to you in the report? Oh, it sure does. So, you know, what in terms of a percentage of all age groups, uh, children are about, you know, 33%, which has been holding steady, unfortunately, since before the pandemic. But when you're looking at the bigger, it's a bigger pie. So it's like 100,000 more visits from children than there were a year ago. Um, and, and that is quite frightening. Um, and, and we look at that, and, and that stands out, too, with the amount of uh, increase in two-parent families. And you think about, in addition to all the expenses uh, around uh, 
um, food and, and housing um, that families have to contend with. There's child-specific expenses and so forth. And, and those with average income just cannot make ends meet at this point. Thank you so much for breaking down the numbers this morning, Richard. It's it's devastating, and I think, you know, it really is, you know, literally food for thought that we need to pay attention to. If we can afford it, we need to help our local food bank and do as much as we possibly can. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you. Richard Master, uh, Richard Matern is Food Bank's Canada Director of Research. And for us here at calgaryfoodbank.com, if you can reach out, maybe make a um, um, cash donation or food donation, whatever you're able to do, boy, it's sure a need right now. Well, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's a dignity thing to get you to go to that food bank. Mm. And you think, because, because we're in that place now where you have a job. Maybe you're working two jobs, but it's, you know, the roof over the head and heat and food. Okay, now here's the thing, right? Uh, the only wiggle room, we're not getting a discount from our landlords. We know that housing is outrageous right, right now, hard to come by, period. And we know the cost of heating our homes. It's a whole different issue we could be looking at as far as regulation fees, etc. And so the food is the only thing. But if you've never had to go to a food bank and you're proud and you work a job or two, maybe both of you are working and you still can't make those ends meet, it's hard to get in that car and roll up to the food bank. Those ads that you hear, we play them here on QR Calgary, where the woman's voice says, I, I pulled up in my car and I just sat there. Like, I can't even imagine having to do that. But there are so many people who yeah. have to do mm-hmm. that and, and not who we typically envision. And we shouldn't typically envision anymore because that's just not the way reality is. It's who we are as humans, though. We yeah. stereotype. And and we shouldn't because it, there are so many people, obviously, looking at these numbers and the fact that there are, you know, so many of them are children. That's just, it's shameful in our society. And we need, to, if you're lucky enough, you need to help out. We just have to. More than 6,500 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since Israel's retaliation for the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas. We are now 19 days into the Israel-Hamas war. Joining us to talk about the latest developments is Elliot Tepper, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Good morning, Elliot. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Sue. Appreciate it. Sounds like Israel's ground offensive really starting to ramp up in an attempt to root out any and all Hamas members. Is it actually possible to destroy this terrorist group, Elliot? Uh, that's uh, something that uh, I think Hamas is very concerned about at the minute. Yeah, we should stand back a second and remind ourselves of what's happened here. A terrorist group has committed a terrorist act on Israelis uh, in, a, in a horrific fashion. I'd like to just link this a bit with Ukraine as well, because mm-hmm. uh, we, I've got a quote here from President Zelensky, who immediately said, Terror is always a crime, not just against a specific country or terrorist victims, but against humanity in general and our entire world. In the face of such a terrorist strike, everyone who values life must stand in solidarity. And that kind of graciousness also lifts this up into a broader context of terrorism uh, is an attack on democracies everywhere. And we've just had a, this is part of a column here from the Globe and Mail saying that the um, cohesion between terrorist groups and the people attacking uh, Ukraine, that's, it's, it's growing closer and closer. So there's an overlap there. What's happened, as we know, is this terrible attack. But what we're seeing today is the logical unfolding of the results of that attack. And that was planned, pre-planned. What we're seeing in front of us is very much part of the long-standing Hamas strategy. They attack, they embed their people 
in hospitals and in schools and in, under mosques and all in the civilian population, using human shields, therefore, uh, to uh, ward off the responsibility for their actions and counting on the humanitarian crisis which follows to put pressure on Israel basically to let Hamas off the hook. And, you know, Israel has to stop. Now it's not about Hamas and terrorism. It's about Israel and humanitarian goals. So we are witnessing a downstream planned strategy by Hamas. Can Israel go in and root them out, you ask? Sue, this is a, uh, a change in Israeli strategy. It had been, until now, we'll manage the Hamas, Hamas uh, periodic incursions into Israel and their attacks on Israel. But uh, we're going to mow the lawn, as they say. We'll degrade their capacity to attack again after this clearly blatant, horrific, barbaric, we have to think in terms of ISIS here, this ISIS-style attack on Israel. Uh, now the goal is indeed to go in and remove them root and branch. Can it be done? Um, not without enormous cost on the Israeli side, on the other side as well. But there is great determination that Hamas will no longer be able to do what they have done repeatedly now and uh, most demonstrably in this terrorist attack. Elliot, now we're hearing word out of Gaza that uh, looks like uh, hospitals are going to need to, to shut down uh, due to a lack of fuel and yes, supplies. Sir. Can we underscore the potential humanitarian consequences if, if there are no access to hospitals in that area? Yes, quite clearly. This, as I say, this is, the, this is part and parcel of the Hamas strategy to be sure that humanitarian results are so horrific that that's what we're talking about justifiably. These are essentially Hamas is using the entire Gaza Strip as human shields and indeed human sacrifices. Uh, there's little evidence to, to show that Hamas really cares about those hospitals other than, other than as uh, a way to pressure Israel because, as Israel just pointed out, Hamas has stockpiled a lot of oil. They've stockpiled everything you need to keep all those hospitals and things going, but refused to provide it because that doesn't serve their political ends. So it's, Hamas does not seem to care about the people of Gaza. They just care about their own ends. And yes, and what's unfolding is just an unspeakable tragedy uh, on all sides. And on that note, what are some of the economic impacts that this war is having in the region? Uh, well, we've if this spreads into a wider war, it's going to, which is very, very possible, then it will have enormous economic impacts. Uh, right now, in terms of Israel, it's got to have an economic impact because this this army that they muster is really this is a reservist army, and so the economy of Israel is pretty well shut down as they have to keep their uh, their reserves now pulled off from the economic side. But if this spreads further. Uh, how can I put this? I'm not as concerned as others are that, oh, this is now going to involve Iran, and that's going to have economic implications. Yes, it might involve Saudi Arabia. That might have economic implications. But the implications, more fundamentally, are political. Uh, if Iran is off the oil market because they're embroiled in a war with Israel the, <laughs> and the United States and the West and NATO, perhaps, then that's really the big story. There's going to be economic and political ripple effects of Hamas being an ISIS organization that attacked uh, and butchered Israelis. We are going to all be paying a cost in some way. The minor cost to us will be the economic ripple effect. The major cost is on the people of the region.
Speaking this morning with Elliot Tepper, a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. In Elliot, uh, we're still hearing that diplomacy is, is trying to be ironed out to try and uh, work things out. Is there, in your opinion, any chance whatsoever that the Israeli forces do not move in on the ground? Apparently, the Israelis have a strategy, a three-part. I don't have the, the words exactly in front of me, but they're saying basically we're going to use our air force to do a lot of the work, phase one. Phase two, we will go in and do some mopping up operations, which means, yes, a ground invasion specifically aimed at Hamas. And then three, uh, how, how is this war going to end? Then Israel wants not to ever govern uh, Gaza again, but they do want to have uh, security zones. Right now, Egypt is always going to be looked to as the final mediator here. There's a lot going on behind the scenes on two fronts. One is primarily on the hostage situation, what can be done there. So the Qataris who have been funding Hamas and continue to house the leadership of Hamas, uh, they're very active and dribbling out a few hostages at a time, I think, to delay the the ground war by, uh, by Israel. But uh, Turkey has also been... A supporter of Hamas and, and has their leadership every now and then uh, housed with them. Turkey wants to play a role in all this. Egypt and Jordan are very, very active because they are uh, directly affected by this. A lot is going on behind the scenes, but the, but the battlefront is where the action is right now. Elliot, we talked off the top about, you know, the world's coming together to fight against Hamas, much like ISIS at the time. Is that, you know, we're hearing reports that the U.S. Treasury is now going to target Hamas's finances. Does that impact this conflict or will they just find the money elsewhere from those that you just mentioned are, are you know, helping Hamas from the sides? Yes. Uh, the two main funders so far of Hamas that we're aware of primarily is Iran and and the Qataris and the Qataris have cut back recently on their paying of the bureaucrats uh, the bureaucrats were supposed to be running the you know the looking after the governance of Gaza now Hamas is boasting that that was all just uh, duplicity they were lulling everybody into thinking they wanted to govern rather than commit terror so they could prepare for this terrorist act we don't know all of the ripple effects of this where the money is going to be coming from. This has been, if you want to frame it in this fashion, a great victory for Iran at the cost of the people of, of the region. Uh, this is being framed, I was on air shortly after, after this was unfolding, and said, this looks like an Iranian operation. There was momentum building to uh, have Saudi Arabia with the U.S. normalize relations with Israel, and that would have a transformative effect Iran wanted to head that off, so they released uh, this attack through, uh, through their proxies in Gaza, their Islamic Jihad being one of them, too, along with Hamas. And it was brilliantly successful, but as part of that, the Saudis were supposed to do a lean on Israel to do something really dramatic in favor of the Palestinians. All of that's off, the, all of that's off now. So the, um, the regional implications of this are, are, are horrific. Cutting off the funding to Hamas might be very, very difficult as long as states like Turkey and certainly Iran, and as well we know the Qataris, but also they can raise money. Uh, they can raise money privately. There's a lot of support saying, "Well, well, they're, they're just a resistance organization." Uh, our own secretary, our own minister of defense, just 
Mr. Blair just came out and said, this is a terrorist organization, and uh, stopped treating them like they're just some other resistance organization. So I think humanitarian aid does have to come into Gaza. Money has to come into Gaza, but not go to Hamas. And yeah. that's a very the issue. Uh, tricky proposition. Thank you so much for your insight this morning, Elliot. We appreciate your time. Well, it's so complicated and so yeah. horrific. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That is uh, Elliot Tepper, Distinguished Senior Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Today was the day the Bank of Canada with their announcement, and they've held the line on the latest interest rate in this decision this morning. Well, actually, just coming down six months ago. Joining us to discuss the decision and the state of the Canadian economy is Nicola Gradovic, Professor of Finance at the University of Guelph. Good morning to you, Nicola. Morning. Pleasure to be with you. We have our answer. I've been waiting. It was circled on my calendar. Well, not quite. It's not like Christmas Day for me. And we were wondering what would happen. Thoughts were that it would be held at 5%. That is the case. What are your thoughts on the decision? Well, this comes in no surprise. Uh, most of the experts and the market kind of predicted this to happen. Uh, basically, the economy is slowing down. The real estate market is slowing down. Market sentiment is very low. Uh, people are tired of, of, of this high interest environment and high inflation. So I think the Bank of Canada did the prudent and, and the sensible move and held the interest rate. Okay, so we know the Bank of Canada is holding at 5% now. So do you think this is the peak? Will we see rates start to fall maybe near the end of the year? Well, the inflation rate is still hovering at around 4%, which is far from the target. The target is around 2%. So we could see potentially another hike in December. But I'm not forecasting it right now. I'm just saying it could happen. But we'll have more data in October and November. And then the Bank of Canada will make a decision. Again, it could happen, but now it's 50-50, in my opinion. Are there any tools in the toolkits? Because you laid it out uh, brilliantly there, uh, Nicola, in the fact that you have 3.8%, uh, the target being two. Are there any other tools the government could use to try to bring us back to that mark? No, no, unless uh, we get a salary increase, all of us. I mean, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. It has to get worse before it gets better. So uh, the problem is when they increase the rate, they also increase the inflation uh, because they increase the mortgage payments. So partially, they're causing it by increasing the interest rate. So I think by holding it, uh, I think this was the right decision at the moment. Again, given the market sentiment and the overall gloomy outlook for the Canadian dollar and everything, this was the right decision. Nicola, state of the Canadian economy, likelihood, that are we headed towards a recession? There was a lot of talk about that, but maybe are we holding steady, do you think? Uh, I think most of the Canadians predict and expect a, a, a recession next year. There was a recent poll that I read. Uh, it could happen most likely. And again, I think it has to get worse before everything slows down. And we have some interest rates going to going down to some reasonable levels because it's difficult to afford a home now, very difficult. I know we talk about in terms of, you know, the next mark, the next date that we'll have a decision on the BOC. And I know we can't just flip the calendar and change things, but do you think we can see some changes in effect and things seem to be easing up in 2024? I don't see anything easing up before the third quarter of, of 2024. I mean, this will be a long journey, unfortunately. <laughs> It's too many, too many economic indicators are, are pointing to uh, like bankruptcies are very high, uh, insolvencies are high, uh, and, and then the stock market is not doing well. 
like too many forces are coinciding and and, and leading us to uh, to recession, unfortunately. Yeah. We know this can affect people differently, and we know the negative effects on the majority of Canadians. Is there anybody benefiting from this high inflation and high interest rates? Well, if you look at the real estate market, luxury homes are doing really well. So some people got rich during COVID, and and again, uh, like uh, you know, average family home is it's not doing well. Like uh, I mean, a lot of supply, not too much demand, but luxury homes are doing well. So there is, I, I think, uh, some people who who are benefiting from this, and whoever can deal cash, that that's helpful in this situation. So if you have plenty of cash, and again, not very many of us do have cash at disposal. Uh, yeah, that, that would be... Now is the time to buy a home if you have cash, unfortunately. If you have cash. <laughs> yes. Last word. Oh, yeah, there's that. Uh, thank you so much for your insight. I know that we, again, this just came down 10 minutes ago. We appreciate your thoughts, Nicola. I'm sorry I'm bringing some bad news, but uh, my pleasure to, uh, again, to help you with this. Just the facts. Have a great day. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. That is, of thank course... Nikola Gradojevic, uh, professor of finance at the University of Guelph. And, and again, the Bank of Canada holding its key interest rate steady at 5%. That's the news this morning. Toto wrote a song about it. <laughs> called hold, hold the Line. Hold the Line. Good one.